vitamin D deficiency and cardiovascular disease. Is there a connection? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me is Dr. Thomas Wang, who is Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School in Boston. Dr. Wang is a cardiologist and associate director for heart failure and transplantation at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and he's published extensively in the cardiology literature. Today, we're going to be talking about vitamin D deficiency and the risk of cardiovascular disease. Dr. Wang, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks for being with us. Very much, Gary. Appreciate it. Sure. Um, this kind of, I, I think to many of our uh, listeners, this may be an unusual topic or a surprising topic. So maybe you could give us a little bit of uh, your own medical background and how you got interested in this line of uh, research. Sure. As you know, I'm an academic cardiologist and a clinical investigator. I did my training in cardiology and then subsequently uh, specialty training in both heart failure on the clinical side and on the research side in both clinical investigation and epidemiology. I have done much of my research on the Framingham Heart Study data, uh, which, as you also know, is a long-running study in Massachusetts looking at longitudinal risk factors for heart disease. And so my research is largely focused on the interaction of these risk factors with heart failure and with atrial fibrillation, two diseases that are of clinical interest to me. And so the interest in vitamin D grew out uh, of a number of observations and other lines of investigation outside of the work that I do. There has been a growing biologic literature uh, that has suggested that vitamin D may play an important role in regulating heart function and vascular function. And some of these effects may have a large impact on the risk of developing heart failure, which is how I became interested in the whole area. There's a, a second thread that spurred me on to do some of our recent work, which is a, a long-running collaboration with uh, a colleague who's a kidney doctor, and his group has been studying for a long time the impact of vitamin D on outcomes in people on dialysis and with end-stage renal failure. And he, in many ways, got me much more aware of some of the experimental literature surrounding vitamin D and the potential interaction with heart disease is the, you know, one of the major causes of morbidity and mortality in the dialysis population is heart disease. And so both from a personal standpoint, my interaction with this colleague, and from a professional standpoint, my recognition of this growing literature, those are two things that motivated uh, me and my colleagues to, to study this area in greater detail. Right. I can see how that would uh, come together. Well, you know, many of us, as we were going through school, we learned about cardiac risk factors. I'm, I'm fairly certain that most of us did not consider vitamin D to be an issue. Sure. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the biologic plausibility and maybe the physiology. How does vitamin D and, and its uh, cogeners relate to cardiovascular disease, or how might it? Sure. There are really a couple lines of evidence that are probably worth considering. One is the fact that although we all think of vitamin D as having its major influence on bone health, receptors for vitamin D actually exist on multiple tissues in the body and multiple types of cells in the body. And so even before this interest in heart disease, there's been a growing appreciation that vitamin D impacts a number of other physiologic systems like the immune system, like the renin angiotensin system, obviously an important signaling system for those of us interested in cardiovascular disease. And the vitamin D also has direct effects on many cell types. It affects how they grow and proliferate. And so the first piece 
is that we are now realizing that we have to think more broadly about the effects of vitamin D in the body, that this is not just a question of calcium absorption and bone health, but in fact vitamin D very likely has very wide-ranging effects on many systems in the body. So that's mm-hmm. one piece of information. The second line of evidence comes from some genetic studies in, in rats, which look at what happened when you get rid of the vitamin D receptor. In other words, you make the rat unable to respond to the effects of vitamin D. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the very interesting observations in these rats is that they developed left ventricular hypertrophy, so thickening of the walls of the ventricle, and they're also prone to hypertension. And as the scientists that performed these studies looked further, they found that one of the major reasons that this is a case is that vitamin D has a direct influence on the expression of renin, a molecule in the blood that has a very important effects on the heart and vascular system. And the rats that were deficient in vitamin D had an overactivity of the renin system. And of course, overactivity of the renin angiotensin system, we know both experimentally in humans, has many detrimental effects on the heart system. And so that's another large area of scientific evidence that has motivated many like myself to be interested in this area. Mm-hmm. If we understand uh, some of that biological plausibility, then we're talking about vitamin D deficiency as a, yep. a potential risk factor. I assume then that it's fair to say uh, that there is a population in this country that is vitamin D deficient. Do we know the extent of that or do you expect that to be the case? Yeah, well, that's certainly true. And uh, in fact, it's probably a very common finding in the population. Uh, yes, I mean, the, uh, really the only reason for a lack of, a, of an easy figure to hang your hat on is the fact that it really depends on how you define vitamin D deficiency. And believe it or not, there's a little bit of, uh, or more than a little bit of controversy in the literature on what actually would constitute vitamin D deficiency. But even if you use very conservative thresholds uh, for vitamin D deficiency, in other words, thresholds um, at which if someone has vitamin D levels below that threshold, almost anyone would agree that they're deficient, then probably at least 30% of the population um, in the United States has vitamin D deficiency. And obviously, in areas of less sunlight and during the winter, that prevalence is likely much higher. Those are, uh, those are real numbers. Yeah. If, uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Thomas Wang, and we're talking about vitamin D deficiency and the risk of cardiovascular disease. So, Tom, we've talked a little bit about uh, how vitamin D might uh, exert its effect in cardiovascular disease and the fact there's a population that might be vitamin D deficient. So let's talk a little bit about your recent work. Um, when you start, sat down to think about a, doing a study, uh, how did you think about how you might go about designing it? Were you thinking prospective, retrospective, intervention type of study? What, what were your thoughts, and, and how did you come about on the design you settled on? Sure. Well, you know, the, the first type of study, um, in fact, the, some of the studies that exist before we even started our study are more what we would call ecological studies. So there's sort of um, observations that say, well, if vitamin D is important, then you would expect that areas of the world that get less sunlight uh, where vitamin D deficiency is more common may also be areas where heart disease is more common. And so, in fact, many studies like that exist in the literature. And so that's one type of study which constitutes probably the weakest level of evidence, but it's at least a start. The second type of study is a study where you say, well, you take a bunch of people with heart disease and compare them to a bunch of people without heart disease and look at their vitamin D levels. And, in fact, in a number of those studies have been done as well. 
and have found that people with heart disease tend to have lower vitamin D levels. So that would be a second level of evidence, but still rather weak, because you don't really know what came first, the heart disease or the vitamin D deficiency. And so the type of study that we did was prospective in that we had the ability to look at vitamin D levels that were measured over a decade ago in people who did not have heart disease. And then by virtue of the longitudinal follow-up of the Framingham Heart Study cohort, we were able to look at the question of whether the levels measured 10 years ago predicted who would go on to develop heart disease over the ensuing decade. And so that's essentially the type of study that we did. Now, it's still observational. We didn't do anything to perturb their vitamin D system, either positively or negatively. We simply looked at a group of people, a large group of people who had vitamin D status assessed to examine the association between the vitamin D status and the heart disease. And so I would regard that as a next level of evidence that still doesn't quite attain the strength of evidence you would get by actually doing an intervention, but would be a critical precursor to doing those types of interventional studies. Was dealing with that amount of data uh, difficult? Is it, uh, I assume this was the Framingham, uh, was it offspring uh, population? That's correct. So it's the, Framingham currently has three generations that it follows, and it's the middle generation. And it, you know, this is the nature of epidemiologic studies is it involves a large amount of data on a large number of people. And so in this way, it really wasn't unusual for the types of studies that are done. Some of the challenges of studies on those numbers is sorting through many types of signals, some of which could be false and some of which could be true. And so as you asked earlier, there certainly has to be some level of biologic plausibility going into it for you to even think of looking at a question in a population like this, because Mm -hmm. there's always a risk in a population like this that just because of the size that you find things that appear to be significant that are either not significant because the effects are just so small as to be unimportant, or they're just you just found them by chance, and in fact, it's just sure. a false finding. So sure. that represents sort of the biggest challenge of research like this. Well, could you give us a maybe quick summary of what the results were and, and uh, whether you were surprised to see what you found? Sure. The overall result was that in the people that were vitamin D deficient in the study sample, which was about 1,700 people, and using a definition of vitamin D deficiency again, which is quite conservative, that in those people, which constituted about 30% of the population, the risk of having a cardiovascular event in the almost 10 years of follow-up was approximately 60% higher in the people who were not vitamin D deficient, according to the study. I'm sorry, that was 60%? That's correct, yeah. Wow. Maybe you could put that in some context for us, like compared to some other risk factors. Sure. More you know, it would still be regarded as a moderately strong risk factor in that there are risk factors that are stronger. Certainly smoking, diabetes, and other risk factors in Framingham would be quantitatively stronger risk factors you know, associated with larger increases in the risk of heart disease. On the other hand, many of the, quote, novel risk factors, which is the risk factors that are the ones that we've been describing in the last several years rather than you know, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. would quite nicely into that range of effect. In other words, it is certainly a clinically significant effect if it is true. Again, not quite as strong as some of the classic risk factors like smoking, but quite strong and important because heart disease is so common that even a 60% increase will represent quite a large number of people that could potentially be affected. Yeah. Were you surprised at the strength of the association? A little bit. You know, 
we obviously looked at the question because we thought there was a reasonable chance that we would find something, uh, again, based on the biologic evidence and some of the prior clinical evidence. On the other end, anytime you find something that is relatively new, it is a surprise and, you know, a pleasant surprise in some ways because one of the attractive things about vitamin D deficiency as a potential risk factor is that it's relatively easy to fix. So I would say we were pleased that there was this finding, again, because if it is true, and I certainly would acknowledge that further studies would need to be done to establish that it is true, Mm -hmm. but if it is true, it would represent a potentially modifiable risk factor. I want to thank Dr. Thomas Wang for being our guest today. We've been talking about vitamin D deficiency and the risk of cardiovascular disease. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thanks for listening.